0: Welcome to the Localising Humanitarian Aid podcast. My name is Sierra Mia Ohini. In 2018, the global humanitarian assistance industry was worth 28.9 billion US dollars. However, the vast majority of this money remains in the hands of international organizations. Local and national organisations who undertake the vast majority of the humanitarian response are often left scrabbling for funds. This imbalance was one of the main talking points at the first World Humanitarian Summit, which was held in 2016, with many calling for humanitarian aid to be localised.
1: The localization agenda is really concerned with moving more decision-making power and more funding closer to the places where humanitarian crises are actually happening.
0: At the conclusion of the summit held in Istanbul, donors and aid providers agreed a series of changes to improve the efficiency of the humanitarian response. This is known as the Grand Bargain.
2: And the headline commitment of that relating to localization is this commitment of channeling 25% of humanitarian funding to local and national responders as directly as possible by 2020.
0: Four years on from the World Humanitarian Summit, limited progress has been made in this key commitment of localizing humanitarian aid. So, what does this mean for the humanitarian activity around the world, especially for countries undergoing long term conflicts? The COVID-19 pandemic has reinforced the urgency of this issue. Just as in times of conflict, there is an increased risk of delivering aid. This leaves staff of international NGOs and agencies to take a step back. This then shifts the responsibility onto local and national NGOs to ensure aid is received by those who need it most. However, it does not mean that their funding or power increases. In this two-part podcast series around the theme of localizing humanitarian aid, I will be looking at the example of South Sudan, which has had an ongoing civil war since 2013. I will be speaking to a number of researchers associated with the London School of Economics and Political Science, the Research People and Care International. They have been funded by the UK DFID Office in Juba to conduct a forensic study of local and national NGOs in South Sudan to inform DFID's engagement with the localization agenda in the East African country. Human suffering has continued to intensify around the globe since the Second World War. That is why, in May 2016, the then UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon convened the first ever World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul. One key issue discussed at the summit was the localization of humanitarian aid.
1: My name is Lydia Tanner. I lead a small research organisation called The Research People on doing research around making the humanitarian sector a bit more locally relevant and responding to the needs and priorities of both communities that are affected by humanitarian crises but also the frontline organisations that support them. The localisation agenda is really concerned with moving more decision-making power and more funding closer to the places where humanitarian crises are actually happening, so in particular moving both funding and decision-making power towards the local and national organisations that are responding to crises. There have been concerns and discussions around the position of local and national organisation for many decades, but the localisation agenda, as it's known, I guess, started a bit more recently than that. And in particular, in the run-up to the 2016 World Humanitarian Summit, people started talking about localization, and there were calls for commitments to be made, um, specifically focusing on how to get funding in particular uh, more directly to local and national organisations.
0: The summit concluded with a concrete agreement which raised hopes of the humanitarian response becoming more efficient and doing a better job of supporting and channeling aid to local responders. Researcher Lydia Tanner outlines the content of this agreement.
1: The Grand Bargain was a set of 51 commitments that were made at the end of the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016. And those commitments fall into 10 different work streams. So they cover a whole range of issues. The localization work stream was the second of those 10 work streams. And it contains commitments around decision making, information, and resourcing of local and national organizations. And that was signed by a whole host of donors, UN agencies and NGOs.
2: Hi, my name is Alice Robinson and I am a PhD student in the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics. For my doctoral research, I am looking at and working with South Sudanese organisations, NGOs, that are involved in the International Humanitarian Response. And the headline commitment of that relating to localization is this commitment of channeling 25% of humanitarian funding to local and national responders as directly as possible by 2020.
0: Four years on, the next World Humanitarian Summit is due to take place in New York City in September 2020, COVID 19 permitting, of course. But how well have aid donors and international organisations done in fulfilling their commitments over the past four years? According to Lydia Tanner, little headway has been made overall.
1: Across the Grand Bargain commitments in general, there has been some progress, particularly um, on the workstream around using more cash and voucher assistance programming, and also some progress around the commitments on transparency. In terms of the localisation commitment, There have been really limited steps taken and particularly the commitments on funding have not really been met and there has been very limited progress. One of the challenges is that there aren't actually very good data available for the amount of funding. There has been some kind of disagreement about the definition of what funding to local and national organisations as directly as possible actually meant. So who are the local and national organisations and what does it mean to give them funding as directly as possible? So... One of the kind of challenges of assessing progress is that there's actually not very good data to tell us where we were at the beginning and and where we are now.
0: Let's hear again from Lydia Tanner about why it has been so hard to put the Grand Bargain commitments into practice.
1: There's often different levels of understanding of the commitments between uh, the organisational headquarters where the Grand Bargain was signed and the field offices where a lot of the implementation happens. There's challenges with the breadth and scope of commitments, so 51 commitments across 10 different work streams. It was really hard for people even to keep track of what those commitments were, let alone the progress that they were making against them. There's a challenge with the lack of practical ways of measuring progress, and there's also not enough agreement about what the commitments actually mean, what the priorities are, and whether these commitments are primarily related to economics and and funding are primarily related to shifts in power and more kind of fundamental transformations of how decision-making and financing decision-making happens within the sector.
0: Despite this, local and national responders continue to deliver humanitarian aid within these financial constraints we can gain much insight into the daily operations, challenges and successes of these organizations. Researchers associated with LSC, the research people and the University of Juba spent much of 2019 with local and national NGOs in South Sudan finding out how these operate and developing recommendations on how donors can develop more effective partnerships. And there are good reasons why South Sudan is an ideal case study for other countries suffering from long-term conflicts.
3: So I am Naomi Pendle. I'm a research fellow at the Firoz Laudi Centre for Africa at the London School of Economics. I research on power in South Sudan and Africa generally. I think about not just the power of government, but also the power of divine authorities, of churches, of prophets, of chiefs. Um, and the international community. Since the 1970s, there has been an international humanitarian response to help people in need in South Sudan, right back to the 70s, in terms of helping South Sudanese people return to South Sudan, and then in the 80s, 90s, through the years of war, after the 2005 peace agreement, again helping people return, and then again during the current war. And that has definitely saved thousands of lives in moments of great difficulty, but it is also, become controversial over time because of concerns of the way in which different governments have tried to manipulate that aid to serve their own purposes and to move populations or to make populations more hungry or to leave them vulnerable. So humanitarian aid in South Sudan has both been important to save lives, but also because South Sudanese know that it can be used as a political tool to manipulate them and manipulate politics.
2: So according to the latest humanitarian response plan, there are still around seven and a half million people in need of humanitarian assistance, which is more than two-thirds of the population. So there are a lot of questions about how to respond to that scale of need and how to reach people that are in more remote or inaccessible places and in the areas that are worst affected by the conflict. And in doing that, South Sudanese NGOs are playing an increasingly important role, uh, especially in reaching conflict-affected areas.
0: Alice Robinson there. Given the multiple waves of conflict in South Sudan, it is no surprise that humanitarian NGOs have a long history in the country.
4: My name is Marlis John-Peter. I work for CARE International in South Sudan as a senior policy and partnerships advisor. The emergence of NGOs and humanitarian work in South Sudan can be traced back to the 1950s, when Sudan first got independence in 1956. At the time, we had missionaries in the southern part of the country that were offering education, health, and missionary services. But due to political reasons, in the late 50s, uh, the Khartoum government expelled some of these missionaries. The first wave of civil war started just after independence from early 1960s until 1972 when the first agreement was signed in addis ababa to end that first anyanya one conflict and when that window of opportunity arose, we have seen that international ngos and national NGOs started to emerge to provide basic services such as water health education among others to the population that were in their need as a, a result of the conflict that was difficult for them to produce for themselves basic needs like food, or also as a result of natural disasters like drought, flooding and so forth. But equally important, from 1983, the country descended into another major conflict which resulted into more than 20 years of civil war between the south and the north. And during that time we have witnessed significant rise of uh, humanitarian operations, which was duped the operational lifeline Sudan, or less. It was by then the world's biggest humanitarian operations that was responding to the impact of the civil war and the drought that was already taking quite significant number of human life in the country. And from that period, of course, much of the work was done by international NGOs. There was quite a small presence of religious, faith-based, uh, indigenous organisations that were also uh, responding.
0: The Comprehensive Peace Agreement, signed in 2005, marked a new phase of aid in the country, according to Malish.
4: Now, when the CPA was signed, there was a window of opportunity for international aid to move from the emergency operations or programming to more recover resilience and development. And this is the period, again, we have seen the strong emergence and maybe the highest number of international angels that came to southern Sudan to support, established uh, some of the basic institutions for the uh, simultaneous uh, government in the south, as well as to meet immediate needs of communities between 2011 and 2020, we have seen quite strong presence of national NGOs, local NGOs, as well as international and multinational corporate companies that want contracts from bilateral donors to start providing some of the basic services in the country.
0: In 2017, 1.6 billion US dollars was devoted to the humanitarian response in South Sudan. But how much of that sum was actually fed through to local and national responders? Lydia Tana has the answer.
1: A 2017 study suggested that only 0.3% of funding was going directly to local or national organizations and that just under 5% of funding was going to them at all. So although they're often on the front line of the response, and particularly in those areas that are the most difficult and dangerous to access, they receive a really very small percentage of the funding, Um, and that tends to come through multiple layers of other organisations first.
0: Much of the work done by humanitarian responders centers around emergency food relief, However, it also includes making sure people have access to clean water and other non-food items such as blankets, shelter, education, sanitation, peace building, to name just a few. John Mali sheds light on some of the other activities of NGOs in South Sudan.
4: Humanitarian agencies in South Sudan provide a wide range of services from water, education, health and protection are mainly delivered by international NGOs. We have also seen quite a strong presence of humanitarian agencies in the agriculture, livelihoods, micro-enterprises and development sectors. Equally, we see humanitarian agencies involved in activities that primarily should have been led by the government, including civilian protection. Currently, South Sudan faces the highest number of incidents of gender-based violence including sexual violence, such as rape, especially within households and communities. International and national NGOs have really been at the forefront to provide protection services to some of the worst affected people like women and girls. We have seen humanitarian agencies working quite well in providing basic infrastructure in communities. For example, the World Food Program in partnership with different national and international NGOs are opening up feeder roads, repairing some basic bridges in communities, and also improving school and health infrastructure, such as classroom and putting in health facilities.
0: Not surprisingly, ex-employees of international organizations feature heavily among founders of local and national NGOs in South Sudan. However, there is a dearth of women. This is despite the important roles they have played in peace building and civil society over many decades. Let's hear from Lydia Turner.
1: One of the most interesting parts of the research for me was in seeing the, the kind of different challenges that different types of organizational founders face. I think to start an organization, you often have to have, to have a certain level of reputation within the community, often a certain level of funding, a certain level of convening power in order to get an organisation founded and off the ground. But once you do that, there are then many challenges that these founders face in sustaining their organisations, in building the relationships that they need with funders, with um, community representatives, with different holders of influence within the community, Uh, And then also with all the other types of organisations and government actors that you as an organisation will have to work with. And what we saw is that organisations led by women and organisations also outside of Juba often face more challenges in building up some of these relationships than organisations founded by particularly younger men who had education and a lot of experience working with different types of international organisations. So I think what the research points to is a need to kind of specifically invest in women leaders. Um, There are a handful of quite prominent women leaders within the South Sudan NGO community, but many of the women-led associations and local organisations really struggle to access funding and, and struggle to access formal relationships with donors and NGO partners um, that, that their kind of other founder counterparts manage and, and so I think for organisations and donors really wanting to foster a more diverse, representative, humanitarian ecosystem, there's a need to kind of specifically think about how to invest in those individuals and groups of female founders.
0: For one female NGO founder in South Sudan, the support of fellow women has been invaluable, as Naomi Pendle narrates.
3: There's a recent um, NGO started in Juba by a young South Sudanese lady. She'd partly grown up in rural South Sudan where there has been a lot of conflict recently. She was partly educated in Kenya through Kakuma refugee camp and then in Nairobi. But she returned to South Sudan because she thought she could use her education to help the people where she had grown up knowing that there had been a lot of conflict there. And she herself was a business lady. She'd been working for um, a printing company and had managed to earn some of her own money through that means and invest some of her own money in small businesses in Juba. And so she used that credibility to ask other South Sudanese women from her home area to also contribute. And some of them were business people, some of them were female politicians. And so her NGO has started through these donations of South Sudanese women who are have political connections and economic success.
0: Alongside these local and national NGOs in South Sudan are many international NGOs from around the world, as Naomi Pendle observes.
3: The most common names to see around are obviously the United Nations and the various agencies of the United Nations, such as UNICEF, UNHCR is also present at various times. You see that two of the most famous humanitarian organisations in the world are MSF, which is Médecins Sans Frontières, and the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC. You also see Oxfam, Save the Children, World Vision. These are names which are very common in South Sudan. You see their cars around, you see their offices in Juba, and many of them have been active there for decades.
0: Given their ample resources, Why is it important for these international NGOs to outsource their humanitarian response to local and national NGOs? John Malish explains.
4: Because the national NGOs are already within the communities. They do understand the dynamics of the community. They do even, to some greater extent, know who are in need, who need to be supported with what. So by outsourcing services to the national NGOs, the international actors kind of widens their scope while building local uh, capacity for future humanitarian response. We have also seen that the presence of national NGOs in humanitarian response help a lot because they are cost-effective in terms of the value of money that they spend to reach to similar needs in community vis-à-vis what international actors will uh, spend is quite minimal, but also that is value in working with national and local NGOs because of the community embedment of this institution. They are part of the communities in need. In most cases, they move with the communities. We have seen during the 2013 conflict some NGOs like in, in Unity State they have to basically move with the population from one swamp to another providing basic services. And this is something that not many international angels will do. It's worth mentioning that, yes, international angels employ South Sudanese or local staff, but we all know that international angels have different duty of care policies. So during a time of crisis, every international angel will be very careful to ensure that their staff are exposed to risk and so forth.
0: For the most part, these international organisations stay in their base in South Sudan's capital, Juba. But that in itself can pose a real challenge for some local responders seeking international partnerships, as Alice Robinson explains.
2: Often kind of successfully growing an NGO depends on what we talk about in the report as social, political and economic capital. often like ability to engage in the international system and to know how to access funding and who to speak to and what forums to be a part of and how to write a proposal and all these things. Um, It also, funding depends quite a lot on presence and visibility in Juba, so organisations without a base in Juba often really, really struggle to access like large scale resources from the international system.
3: Some of the new South Sydney's NGOs who have emerged to respond to the recent crisis, they have been very intentional about being kind of South Sydney's and kind of a national representative, both because they want to serve the strangers, but because also they feel and they know that international support will come through this. But also some of the older NGOs have a history that means that they have kind of fallen across these political divides. So there is one um, NGO that was founded in the early 2000s, so it's an old NGO, uh, old South Sudanese NGO in South Sudan, and they are based in what became an opposition-held area in 2014. Um, And the strength of their programming has been in opposition-held areas, but they also have a significant base in Juba, and therefore they are constantly crossing the lines between opposition-held areas and government-held areas. They're constantly having to work with authorities on both sides of that divide. And their very identity has been as humanitarians that have allowed them to um, move between these spaces in ways that others cannot. And that hasn't always been easy. They've felt pressures both um, from government authorities and from opposition authorities to polarize and to favor them more. And it's been many of their workers have had to struggle on a daily basis to navigate these relationships, to appease the authorities, to explain to them that they are humanitarians. Um, and to create that space that would allow them to operate despite this kind of polarising context. So it's not always easy to be neutral and to be impartial, but they have struggled to do that because if not, they could not operate in the context of South Sudan and move between the government-controlled Juba and these opposition-held areas.
1: We're really encouraging donors and international organisations to look for ways to engage with organisations headquartered outside of Juba where it's often much more difficult for them to access funding, particularly for those who don't have any presence in Juba at all. And one way that we're suggesting that donors could think about doing that is by working through, for example, the sub level offices of, the, of UN UNOCHA, which is the humanitarian coordination body.
0: Lydia Tanner there and before her Naomi Pendle. What better way could there be of ensuring that humanitarian funds benefits people the length and breadth of Sudan? In this episode, we have looked at the localisation agenda, which really came to the fore during the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016.
2: And the headline commitment of that relating to localization, is this commitment of channelling 25% of humanitarian funding to local and national responders as directly as possible by 2020.
0: However, donors have fallen short in achieving that goal. But it is critical that the delivery of humanitarian aid is as efficient as possible in South Sudan, where nearly two-thirds of the population still need assistance. Donors and international NGOs can work towards dispensing funding by partnering with local responders without a base in Juba. There is also a specific need to invest in women in order to develop a more diverse humanitarian ecosystem in the country. In the second and final episode of this series, we will be exploring the challenges local and national responders face in securing funding and protecting their staff in crisis situations. Thanks to John Malish of Care International, Naomi Pendle and Alice Robinson of LSE, and Lydia Tanner of the Research People. Find out more about this project by visiting the website LSE. Dot AC. Dot UK, forward slash Africa, forward slash research, forward slash NGO, dash sector, dash IN, dash South, dash Sudan. Thanks for listening. This podcast is an output from a project funded by the UK Department for International Development through the Research of Evidence Division for the benefit of developing countries. However, the views expressed and information contained in it is not necessarily those of or endorsed by DFID, which can accept no responsibility for such views or information or for any reliance placed on them.